Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is available at thejazzsession.com and also for free in iTunes. This week's guest is、uh, kind of a different thing than I've done before. We're going to talk today not to a performer, but rather to、uh, a producer, and that is Steve Lake from ECM Records. He's going to be talking about the Touchstones series, which is a reissue series that ECM has put together of many of their classic early recordings. One of those recordings is an album by sitar and tabla player Colin Wolcott. You may know him from the band Oregon. Colin Wolcott put out an album on ECM Records called Cloud Dance, which came out originally in 1976 and featured just an incredible lineup.、Uh, Two of the three of whom I've interviewed before: Jack、uh, DeJanet on drums, John Abercrombie on guitar, and Dave Holland on the bass. And here they are performing "Marguerite." My guest is Steve Lake from ECM Records. ECM has just done an ambitious、uh, re-release of 40 classic recordings from the ECM catalog. And when you look at how deep the ECM catalog is, classic recordings really means classics.、Uh, they've called it the, the Touchstones series.、Uh, they're repackaged and、uh, much more affordable than many CDs are in the stores today. And Steve, thanks、uh, very much for being here to talk about Touchstones. Oh, my pleasure. Can you talk a little bit about the、uh, the idea behind it? Why did ECM choose to do this now, and and how did the label arrive at this kind of packaging and and lower pricing? What was the idea behind that?、Uh, I think several factors really.、Uh, first of all,、uh, many of the 
titles that were included in the series were in the, the first wave of CDs that we had. And we always wanted to tidy up the packaging anyway and get rid of some of the plastic. Our current direction has a CDs in a, in a slipcase, but um, to keep it affordable, we, we settled on this uh, kind of simple, I think they call it soft pack format, and, uh, and decided to, to go for that. And the, um, the titles themselves, it's really difficult to make a, a representative selection from a catalog like ours, which has more than a thousand titles now. Um, but these are records that uh, were you know, important to us for a variety of reasons and all um, helped kick off some new directions in, at the label. And uh, because the series started in, in New York, it was really driven more from our New York office and from, uh, from Munich originally, there's a stronger focus on uh, American musicians, and there was also a wish to bring some records back into the marketplace as well, because uh, ECM's policy for, for very many years was not to delete, uh, but it becomes very difficult to persuade retail to, uh, to buy old albums over the years. You have to do something to, uh, to uh, reanimate them. So the new packaging was really an attempt to uh, draw attention to some music that we think really deserves it. Well, it really is, uh, as you mentioned, it's an, a difficult task to take uh, 40 selections from uh, a catalog as, as deep as ECM's, but I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the selections um, that were made and thought maybe we could start with uh, an album that I hadn't actually listened to for years and uh, heard in this in this format here in the repackaging of Touchstones and just was blown away with uh, how great it was again, and that's uh, Jack DeJanet's special edition yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, about this record and why it was important uh, to ECM? Jack's early records as a, as a band leader had, were, were kind of behind him at, at that point, but he's he's always been a, a very uh, uh, yeah multi-directional artist, and I think perhaps his um, his more experimental leanings have uh, tend to get a bit overshadowed by the fact he's such a great drummer in so many different contexts. He has his roots in the uh, Chicago AACM as well, and uh, that was reflected in his earlier recordings with uh, with Lester Bowie. And here he was uh, looking around at the the newer talents who were in the field at that time, like uh, David Murray, Arthur Blythe, these kind of players, and also looking back at the um, at the history of the music in covering music by Coltrane, looking at Dolphy again, and bringing that into a, a modern modern context, I think.
I think, uh, and I hope I'm not overgeneralizing when I say this, but I think when a lot of people think of the ECM sound, it's a, I don't want to call it cerebral, maybe serene is a, is a word mm. that's often uh, kind of connected with, um, with the ECM sound. And some of the records that uh, you guys have chosen to release in the Touchstone series, and Special Edition is a perfect example of that, are very much uh, counter to or or uh, kind of amplifications of what people might think of as the ECM sound. I mean, there's nothing particularly serene about Special Edition. It's a really pretty hard-driving, you know, very AACM-based sound. Yeah. Is that still reflected in what ECM is doing today? Has the label decided to to kind of narrow its focus and specialize? How How do you make musical choices today or how did you back then it's always so hard to generalize because as soon as you start to try and tie it down you think of uh, of numerous recordings that uh, that don't fit any kind of uh, stereotype sure and i suppose in the actually i was just reading uh, this book of lee Conner's interviews today which is very uh, very interesting book but he talks about how he this, this kind of uh, tag of cerebral that was put on him for years was uh, yeah was kind of like a curse because he's always done so many different things and I think so have we I mean the label really started uh, with free improvisation stressed very strongly that's still one of the things that we have today we've in the last year we've done records with Roscoe Mitchell Evan Park has been there for years you tend to get known by the things that are, that are the most successful perhaps that find the biggest resonance but they've always only been part of the story Firstly, I think there's a lot of quite a lot of blowing music on ECM, some hard blowing stuff, and certainly also Manfred Eicher's position would be that intensity can be defined in very many different ways, and it's possible to have uh, quiet music that burns just as it is uh, music with lots of notes that does. So I think that's uh, those are kind of poles of ECM thought, if you like. Manfred Eicher, we should mention, produced these records, and it's kind of the the creative visionary force behind ECM. Is that? That's right, Fair it started with him, yeah. One of the things I've always appreciated most about ECM is the way it has expanded my knowledge of of world musics, uh, because yeah. I think somewhat from ECM's European vantage point, a lot of the things that here in the States we consider world music are just music uh, mm-hmm. to ECM. And so, uh, for example, when I, when I listen to uh, Colin Walcott's uh, Cloud Dance record, um, a lot of people know Colin from the, the Oregon days, but this is a record that features John Abercrombie, Dave Holland, and Jack DeJohnette, but still very much drawing on um, the, the Indian influences uh, in Colin's own playing. And it seems like that's always been a very valuable role that ECM has played, is kind of introducing people to, to things like Shankar and um, people who bring in a, a diversity of musical ideas. Yeah, just being wide open to all that stuff. But of course, that comes from musicians you meet and uh, and the range of information that they carry with them. I mean, Colin's a fantastic example of that. You could uh, uh, pick up the sitar and, and improvise on changes, but this, you know his background included studying with Ravi Shankar on, this, on the sitar and Ala Raka on the tabla, but also had this depth of jazz knowledge. You could sit at a piano and uh, improvise in, in a Bill Evans tradition and he played orchestral percussion, all these different things. In, in one musician, and I think that uh, very many of the musicians at ECM uh, had this kind of music without borders attitude almost, and uh, it's never been about one tradition. The jazz tradition has always been central, but that's never been all we've done, which again also reflects Manfred Eicher's background. He was a classical bass player who also played jazz and improvised music, and from day one it's been expanding from that point. 
Back uh, in in kind of the early days, a lot of the days represented by uh, the Touchstones series, was was Manfred uh, approaching artists and saying, "I think this is part of some what you're doing is something we should have at ECM." Were people approaching him? Was it a mix of the two? How did how did these artists enter the ECM family? Uh, I think it, it, for the most part, as the label was developed, it became uh, very much a word of mouth thing, and uh, the, the news about this record label was passed along, and pretty quickly. Musicians were wanting to to be there, but of course, at the very beginning, it was completely unknown. So, uh, it was a position of writing letters to people like Keith Jarrett or or Chick Corea or Paul Blay, trying to persuade them that this was something they should be a part of. You know, luckily, they they agreed. You just mentioned Paul Blay, and one of the albums in the Touchstone series uh, is his very wonderful "Open to Love" yeah. solo piano recording. Can you talk a little bit about that recording and? and why it's still so influential today? Um, well, I was talking to Paul about it, actually, not so long ago, and he was saying that when he, when he got the call uh, from Manfred to, uh, to do a solo album, it was so early that he himself hadn't thought about it. It's, we're, we're so used to the idea of solo albums now that perhaps it doesn't seem as revolutionary anymore, but that was a, that was a very important record, I think. Paul was coming out of his electronic period where he'd uh, experimented with synthesizers and so on and gone back to acoustic music and was still looking to get the same kind of sustains he could get uh, from electronics in an acoustic situation. That was part of the, uh, of the story behind that session. And at the same time, um, Manfred had been very touched by Paul's playing in the 60s and uh, loved the compositions of uh, Carla Blay and Annette Peacock wanted to have these things documented, and, uh, and they're there in what I still think is a really uh, yeah, important uh, and very influential piano statement that's been uh, looked at by countless players since then, and real, for me, a real classic.
and Paul has gone on to do so much uh, solo work. It's in yeah. many ways kind of uh, we should be grateful, I think, <laughs> to, to ECM <laughs> in 1972 for yeah. uh, for featuring him this way because he certainly has uh, you know gone on to really excel uh, mm. in that format. Uh, yeah. Another another Paul who. Um, I think just makes an, an incredible statement uh, on ECM, and this is in 1973, is Paul Motion, yeah. uh, who uh, put out the album Conception Vessel, which featured several of the folks you just mentioned, including uh, Keith Jarrett, Charlie Hayden, um, also uh, Becky Friend and Leroy Jenkins. Right. Um, this album, uh, for me, has always been a, a special one, and uh, really one of the, the things that introduced me to, to Paul Motion sound, even though I didn't hear it till years after it was made. Mm. Um this seems like a, a an interesting choice, though, in the in the reissue series, uh, one that maybe somebody had a special place in their heart for. Is that? Do you think that's the case? Or? Well, uh, yeah, I think definitely. Um, um, Manfred saw the, uh, the the Bill Evans trio perform live with uh, Scott Lafaro, Paul Motion. Loved already what Paul was doing there. Loved his playing with Paul Blay, and then. Uh, the Keith Jarrett American Quartet was active at the beginning of the 70s, and uh, we had the good luck to see them quite often over here. And uh, what Paul was doing with percussion then was really special. It was already going beyond uh, timekeeping into uh, colors and orchestration and instant arranging in the playing. And Manfred was sure that Paul could write music and uh, encouraged him to, to develop that. So really... Motion's beginning as a band leader and as a composer start with, with this album. Yeah, his, his friends were keen to support him at the time, and we have this uh, yeah, very strong record, I think, the beginning of a, of a great um, yeah, adventure in music that's Paul's uh, subsequent career. How was it that uh, Manfred Eicher became familiar with the folks uh, involved with the AACM in Chicago, another uh, Touchstones uh, reissue is the Art Ensemble of Chicago's Full Force album, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of that music has been documented on ECM. How did that relationship begin? Do you know? Well, they were, you know, they, as you probably know, they came over. The Art Ensemble came to Paris in '69, '70, about this time, and, uh, and were based in Paris for a while. And they pretty much uh, took the, the European avant-garde by storm. So they were around. And um, at the festivals, I know Manfred went to uh, went to Paris to meet them. And uh, but we used to, I remember before even they recorded for ECM, we used to play a lot of that stuff in the office, like the Joseph Jarman's recordings and uh, People in Sorrow, Les Stars and Sophie, these kind of early art ensemble records we we liked a lot. And uh, yeah, then yeah, they were interested in doing something with us, and uh, we had a really yeah. Uh, yeah, a very interesting encounter of, of Manfred's very detailed panoramic uh, sound production and the art ensemble's instrumentarium and range of colors that they bring to the table, well, which is everything from uh, you know, Roscoe Mitchell's contemporary classical leanings to uh, yeah, Lester Bowie's carnival aspects and uh, Southside music tributes to uh, Charlie Mingus, everything. It's all in there. And you almost need a uh, smaller font size to be able to list all of the the instruments that they yeah. play on this recording. It's pretty amazing when you uh, flip the record over and the list is about yeah. fifty instruments long of the things that they're bringing That's to the right, session. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now, uh, you, speaking of you personally, um, you've made several references to to being there on the ground floor. Can you talk a little bit about your your history with ECM, Steve? Well, I just um, I was working as a music journalist, uh, writing for the 
English music press, and uh, I was writing about rock and uh, and free jazz were really my starting points. And uh, in 1973, I met Manfred in in Berlin. In fact, I was at the uh, uh, the kind of anti festival they had opposite the Berlin Jazz Festival, the Total Music Meeting, sitting at a table with uh, Evan Parker and Peter Brotsman and members of the Globe Unity Orchestra. And Manfred came in with uh, members of the Keith Jarrett Quartet who'd come to check out what the European free players were up to. And um, I'd, that was the first time I met him. And I'd, I'd already written some reviews of early UCM recordings at that point. And we just had a good contact and uh, kept it going. And in 1978, I was invited to, to come to Munich and join the company. Got to go to some uh, pretty amazing sessions quite, uh, quite early on. I remember going to see... Uh, Kenny Wheeler's Dear One recording in Oslo, which uh, was quite a trip. Dave Holland's Emerald Tears album the next day. The next day? The next day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, a, that was a good start. I was going to say, that's a pretty yeah. rough gig you had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How, uh, since you've had now three decades uh, and more to, or three decades exactly, to look at the evolution of this label, uh, have, you seen, have you seen changes? Have you seen... Uh, kind of differences in the ECM's approach? Uh, how would you characterize what's happened kind of in a story arc over those 30 years? Well, I think the 70s was, uh, was a period of the musicians discover, discovering each other. And so there was a, you had a, you know, you have sessions when uh, European and American musicians and musicians from everywhere actually would, would come to Oslo to, uh, you know, to, to meet and compare thoughts and musics and start to take that forward. And I guess there was a kind of quite tight, more of a kind of family attitude in the 70s, which um, then began to uh, establish its own streams. And you know, naturally, things started to kind of grow apart. Musicians at the beginning were all roughly on a, um, an equal level of celebrity, I suppose, <laughs> or lack of it. And then uh, you had these kind of explosions where uh, a recording like Keith Jarrett's Kuhn concert would take off and uh, ultimately sell millions, which uh, gave the company some creative freedom to uh, explore an even wider um, range of options. By the late 1970s, we were recording more contemporary classical music as well, and in 1984, formally started the ECM News Series with the music of Arvo Pert, so Manfred was able to kind of cover both sides of his musical character, if you like, to follow the notated music and uh, also improvisation on the other side and bring a while helping bring a, a sense of form to improvise music it was also able to help classical artists achieve a kind of quasi improvisational freedom something like this and uh, I think that's been the main thing and, um, and so we've gone on we have this now it's uh, I think last year with the touchstones we released 88 albums which is uh, it's a large number for what is still in the office, a, a small group of people here in Munich. I, uh, I've had the, the pleasure of interviewing quite a number of ECM artists over the last several years, and one thing that they almost universally say is that uh, ECM provides a, a kind of safe place to be creative, that, uh, that Manfred's ears and instincts, uh, kind of coupled with the label's philosophy, allow them to, to not feel like they have to produce record X, they can just produce the record they want to make. Um, would you say that's a, a kind of a guiding part of the ECM philosophy? 
Yeah, I mean, there's never, there's really never been any commercial calculation in the throughout through the whole recording process. There's never about gearing a record to a specific market or uh, trying to make a hit or something like this. It's just completely foreign to the way of thinking here. You know, of course, we want the records to sell and reach people, but we start to to think about how that might be done after the recording is made. It's completely outside the whole creative experience. So when the musicians go in. They're encouraged to uh, yeah, find the direction that the, the music should take, and the music itself sets the direction. There's a kind of purity to it that um, perhaps is um, uncommon. At least musicians tell me it's uncommon. You know, I really know this world better than anywhere else, of course. It's interesting because, uh, you know, despite um, that lack of an overtly commercial drive at the record label, ECM has managed to outlast almost, maybe every other record, I can't yeah, think yeah. of another one, but all, certainly almost every other record label, and certainly in terms of quality and, and quantity of output. Yeah. What, to what do you ascribe that? It has to be to do with the, um, the sensibilities of, of our listening audience. You know, there are people out there who, who don't want to be talked down to, I guess, and, uh, and who are interested, fortunately, in the same things we're interested in. By now, there's a, kind of a guarantee, a kind of a sort of net that you know roughly how well a, a given album is going to, even at the most experimental label, is going to do out there. You can kind of work with that. Well, the the Touchstones project is uh, is certainly a great way for either people who have some holes in their collection or just people who, who don't know this music and should um, mm. to, to hop into it, and I really encourage folks to do that. Steve, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you about this music. I think we could spend days talking about it, but I really thank you for uh, coming on the show and, and telling us about some of these classic recordings. Oh, thanks very much.
That was music from Dino Saluzzi and his album Kultrum. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. My name is Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com. You'll also find written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links at thejazzsession.com, so check that out. You can also click on the Show Archive button along the top, and uh, you'll find all the past shows. It's just that simple. I've also got an email mailing list at thejazzsession.com. No spam, but every once in a while you'll get an email in your inbox and a chance to win some free music. Plus, you'll always be up to date on what's happening on the Jazz Session. For more interviews and reviews, point your browser to allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet. They've got a new album out called Serious Respect. It's you can find out more online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz, if you can believe it, on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.